This podcast is brought to you by Merian Global Investors. Merian is proud to be the principal partner of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, together sharing commitment to providing the space to perform. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Laura Prendergast and it's been a somewhat bonkers week here in Westminster. The government seems to be going into full Brexit meltdown and there's even talk of Brexit being delayed. So where do we go from here? On the podcast, we also take a look at the Democrats' anti-Semitism problem, and at the end, I'm given a tarot reading. This week, May's government was defeated twice in votes in the Commons. Then, government cohesion totally broke down when 13 ministers voted against the whip, and we're now expecting an extension to the whole Brexit process. In short, we're having a full Brexit meltdown and anything could happen, even a general election. Here to make sense of it all is our deputy political editor, Katie Balls, who spoke earlier to James Forsyth and Peter Foster, the Telegraph's Europe editor. James, in your cover piece this week, you outlined the possible outcomes that we can expect in Brexit now. Can you just give us a quick taste of those? So you might think that given that Theresa May's Brexit deal has been defeated by the biggest ever margin for any piece of government business, 230 votes, and then defeated again this week by 149 votes, that it would be dead, that you could put a fork in it. But not so fast. There are already plans for meaningful weight free, like to take place in the next six days. And cabinet ministers think that they have an actual... I mean, and this isn't May Lawless, of whom there are banishingly few these days, but cabinet ministers think it has a real chance of getting through. Their theory is that they are working on some stuff with the DUP that might square them off. If you can square the DUP off, then you can bring over a bunch of the ERG. And if this deal looks like it might pass, you could get some more Labour votes for it. Indeed, one of the theories doing the rounds is that Theresa May should make meaningful vote free a free vote because that would make it feel less partisan and might make it easier for Labour MPs to actually vote for the deal. Now, on the Brussels side, in order to get to MV3, if we do get there, Theresa May has got to offer other votes to MPs in the Commons. And one of those votes is on the idea of trying to get an extension from Brussels. In Theresa May's extension motion, she suggested there was a choice between a short extension if her deal passes by March 20, or a long extension if it doesn't pass. Peter, you spend most of your time in Brussels. Can we be sure that the EU27 are going to be offering us an extension? So I think the dynamic has changed a little bit on the extension. If she gets her deal over the line, they will give her an extension to complete the paperwork. No problem on that score. If she doesn't get the deal over the line, and then she goes to Brussels and asks for an extension to have a bit more of an, have another go, MV4, MV5, MV6, I think the answer may well be no. Because, you know, the EU have been saying for months now, you need to make choices. And she constantly fails to duck that. The EU don't believe there is a majority in Parliament for this deal. Fundamentally, they don't believe that the deal is workable. And they, when they look ahead to the future, they don't see, even if she gets it over the line, a stable majority. And, and the extension question gives them a kind of point of leverage here, which is to say, you know, if you want the extension, you need to say what it's for. And so I think for a short, a short extension, in the event that the deal falls gets quite problematic for the EU. And they have a chance to dig their heels in and say, well, actually... We don't think you're going to get it over the line in that period. You're risking a no deal by doing so. And therefore, it's really a long extension. And then it comes with conditions attached. You need to hold European elections. You need to give up your seat at the table in terms of... Because they're not going to let the Brexiteers, you know, pull off a transition in all but name. 
by, you know, the UK will have to give up its seat at the table on laws, just as it does during the transition period, I think, as a condition of a long extension. I mean, there is, do not underestimate the level of fury, frustration in Brussels at the way Theresa May keeps losing these votes, at the way she goes to Sharm el-Sheikh and does a deal about what she needs to get it over the line. And then Geoffrey Cox shows up in Brussels and asks for a whole load of other things that, you know, that the backstops are legal and all the rest of it. I mean, even our friends like the Dutch, you know, who are you know, used to stand in for Cameron, do you remember when he couldn't, you know, the Dutch are really losing patience, you know, I mean, they're very exposed to a no deal Brexit. But I think you'll see, you know, potentially, if she doesn't get it over the line, you might see some really quite interesting and, and, and dangerous dynamics developing in the European Council next week, which we saw at Salzburg, and we saw in December, you know, people underestimate, you know, you, how difficult those meetings can be. When it comes to a potential long extension, do you think there'll be pressure to add a caveat, which which would be that Britain would need to find a new consensus for a softer Brexit if that was to be granted? Or do you think it's more the terms will be so unfavourable the UK wouldn't want to really go near it? Well, I do think the Europeans want a deal. And I'm not sure that, you know, them putting on a condition saying, please look for, you know, there's no trust there. Is she going to do that or is she just going to... I mean, I, to, me, to my mind, you may well reach a point where there's a short extension. I know the government says that you, could, you couldn't have another one after a short extension, but it's just not technically true that. You can hold European elections. Yeah, I mean, the, the government has said a lot of things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the government's trying to say, look, if, if, you, if, 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 if you do a short extension, that's it. The Europeans won't give us another one. You know, I talk to people in Europe, in the, in the institutions that absolutely say that that's not right. You know, if, if we needed to... Come up, we had a good reason, which is for essentially a general election or a second referendum, and we needed to carry on beyond June, then you could basically go to the court and say, look, we really sincerely believe we would be out by June when we asked for that extension. You know, please let us... Let's say we'd revoked, for example, Article 50. Please let us back in. We will hold elections as expeditiously as possible. And and I don't think you know, there is really a technical so barrier. kind of Croatia precedent. Yeah. Correct. And I really don't think there's a technical barrier to that. I think there's a political barrier, which is, you know, the access to a long extension is really about a proper reboot. And that's a general election, second referendum, you know, a serious mechanism by which you look for the Brexit that they see working, which is a essentially a Labour Brexit, right? It's a high alignment customs union with single market elements that make the Irish backstop work, because I don't think anybody in Brussels thinks that the technology really delivers on the border anytime soon either. James, May has suggested there will be a third meaningful vote next week before the European Council. And if that vote also fails, there is talk that the EU's extension terms, as Peter just touched on, could be so undesirable, so unfavourable, that it could in theory help Theresa May go for an MV4, meaningful vote for. Do you think that is a possibility? So I think meaningful vote for runs up against the problem of whether John Burko would allow it on the grounds it's the same deal. The sense in government is that meaningful vote three will be all right, but meaningful vote four might be pushing it. And I think in a way she will rely on kind of blood-curdling warnings from the EU about the kind of extension they're going to offer to try and get her deal over line. So, for example, Donald Tusk's social media is not particularly popular in Downing Street, but his tweet this morning Correct. saying that he's going to urge a long extension actually does help them. So I think there'll be a lot of emphasis on that. I think they'll be quite happy at all this talk that the Spanish might demand a concession on Gibraltar because they're in the middle of an election campaign. They'll all ramp the pressure up on people to vote 
for her deal. I think the question I, I, I've... I think one of the fascinating things is, though, this is going to be really, really close. And I think there is an interesting question if meaningful vote three, let's say the government wins it by two, by four, and they come and ask for a technical extension. Do the EU say, oh, we think this is a stable majority? Or do the EU turn around and say, oh, no, we don't think it is? I think if the EU turn around at that point and say, we won't give you a technical extension because you've only won by a single digits that i think is proper fireworks in uk eu relations and uk politics and i if you are i have discussed this very thing because this is the worst nightmare for the eu you know the eu really don't believe that she has a stable majority for this deal and and you know it's pretty obvious that she doesn't actually you know uh, uh, um you know she skinnies it over the line with everyone's arms behind their backs you know there will be so much bad blood out there the idea that you know one of the worst nightmares for the eu is that they give a, a short extension and i think it will be extremely difficult for them not to do that, having got it over the line. And then the whole thing breaks down when people start to realise, well, we were hoodwinked and, uh, you know, with that level of majority, the whole thing breaks down as legislation goes through to implement the withdrawal implementation bill. And then you get a crash out just before the European elections or just after the European elections. You know, but at some level, I'm not sure what the EU could do about that. Could they really say no? And if they did say no... To do what? Okay, you've passed your deal, but go and pass it with a bigger majority. I mean, I- <laughs> now, there are still some MPs in the Conservative Party who believe the deal can improve. We've heard many times about the Malthouse Compromise, which is the European Research Group's preferred version of Brexit, a cleaner Brexit with two parts. They're now on to part B, which would potentially see a form of managed no deal if they can't get changes to the backstop. Peter, is the negotiating phase of the EU well and truly over this time? Because we've heard it before and then the government have pressed and there are definitely some Brexiteers who still think the government can get more. I don't think they can. I mean, I really do think, and actually, I think actually both sides know that, right, within the limits. I mean, the, the, we are talking about substance here. At the end of the day, uh, the backstop is there because we've never answered the question about how we're leaving the single market in a customs union. We're not having an Irish border, uh, a customs border in the Irish Sea, and we're having an invisible border in Northern Ireland. The reason the backstop's there is because actually on that basis, it's very hard to see how how the trade negotiation between now and 2021 delivers on our pledge to have no infrastructure and related checks and controls on the border. Right? I mean, it's there, because, and, and, and that's where the crunch came last week, is that when you get to the the end of those negotiations the eu wants the backstop and the brexiteers want to walk away right and and they can see that and there is absolutely n- no trust there so the idea that that they're going to do a deal that gives that up i just i just think is is for the birds and the malt house compromise i don't, I don't know michel barnier tweeted about this the idea that you're going to go to the eu and say we're leaving but we'll pay you the money and you'll give us a standstill transition. What puts a legal roof over your head, what allows you to be a non-member who is treated to all intents and purposes as a member, is the withdrawal agreement, right? Article 50, that's what Article 50 allows you to do, absolutely uniquely. Otherwise, you're basically saying, yeah, we're going to pay you the money, we will voluntarily remain aligned, and you trust us. Well, that's no basis for international trade relations for the EU. It's no basis for them to continue to negotiate trade deals with the rest of the world. It's simply no basis. Well, what will Turkey say? Can we have a bit of that? I mean, it is, it's not, and actually talking to people in Brussels yesterday, when this was put up, this, you know, pay as you go, pay to play Brexit. You know, when you ask people what might make the European leaders 
really lose their tempers and really do what happened in Salzburg or do what happened in December. It's this kind of stuff that really makes people in, in Europe just think, you know, this is pointless. You know, the only way through this is just to play serious hardball. Now, with no more legal clarifications coming in that sense, James, what would it take for the DUP to change their minds? Is there anything with the current agreement that would win their support? So there is real optimism. And now, we've heard this before, so, so you know, but there is real optimism that they are making, the government is making progress with the DUP. They think that more than half of the DUP MPs really want a deal. They think that there are only two who are really opposed. So I think five are very keen for a deal, the kind of the, the so-called liberal wing. They think three are reluctantly kind of accept they need a deal and then two are against it. So as I understand it, there are kind of four strands to what is going on. One is this legal advice on the Vienna Convention, uh, which would essentially be saying that if it looked like the backstop was cutting against the Good Friday Agreement by becoming permanent then the UK would, would consider the Vienna Convention criteria to be met and, and attempt to legally walk away from the backstop. The second is some guarantees that if Stormont in the future were to choose to align with EU rules rather than UK rules, that wouldn't prevent any obstacle to those goods from Northern Ireland entering into the UK, the GB market. So that, that is the second. Then... The third is the technology on the border. There is this belief that the date to try and get these alternative arrangements working by December 2020, but they are making some progress, they think, on coming up with technology that would enable the DUP to say, we're going to solve this through technology. That's how we're going to preserve the open border. And there's there's a UN Security Council, which the Irish on the Security Council and voted for, UN Security Council Resolution 1373, that essentially, they think would mean that the Irish would be bound by their UN obligations to talk to the UK about technology. And then I think the fourth is what was referred to me as, as other things. And I think, I think we can all guess what other things means. OK, and finally, I have written this week's magazine about the possibility of a general election and how it's something increasingly Tory MPs are reluctantly thinking might be how this is going to play out. Now, I'm going to put you both on the spot for your final question and just ask, how do you think this plays out? Peter, do you want to go first? I, I, oh God, you know, I, I'd say who knows? No, clearly not. I, I, it seems to me that the danger here is that she gets it over the line. She gets it over the line with Labour votes. I know that the ERG, you know, fantasise that then there can be a putsch and they can take over and reboot the deal in the negotiation. But then you've got a Brexiteer Prime Minister who is essentially trying to implement not the deal. I'm not sure how a Boris Johnson or whoever does that without holding a general election. It seems to me in so many areas, uh, it's so many permutations here, you know, you end up with a general election at some point this year. I think you've got to change the parliamentary arithmetic at, at, at some point, essentially. Uh, that is the challenge. I mean, it, if you want to go through the, the big UK mistakes in this process, the first is obviously is triggering Article 50 before the UK knew what it wanted. And then the second is Theresa May losing her majority in that general election, because I think that that made 
passing a deal more difficult. It made the threat of no deal less credible. It made the idea that the UK would go for some kind of alternative economic model that might have caused some concern that people might have said, oh, we should compromise to avoid the UK doing that. All of those things less likely, and that is the problem. I think on Brexit, given that it is... We, we are all on this kind of roller coaster where things go up and down, up and down. I, I think at the moment there is a sense that there is some momentum growing behind Meaningful Vote 3, but my note of caution would be, I think if she needed to flip 40 MPs, she would be laughing. She needs to flip 75, and that is where things get difficult. I think it is going to be incredibly tight. It's going to be proper hairbreadth stuff. That was Katie Balls, James Forsyth and Peter Foster. And if you'd like to hear more from James and Katie on Brexit, we've got a daily political podcast called Coffee House Shots. Just search for Coffee House Shots on the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts from. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm the host of our weekly books podcast, where we have guests ranging from the authors of fiction to historians and critics and philosophers talking about everything and anything to do with the world of books. We've had in recent months... From the thriller writer Lee Child to the historian Peter Frankopan, we've had Deborah Lipstadt on anti-Semitism, Judith Carr on the Mog books, and Wendy Cope on her wonderful poetry. We hope there's something there for everyone, and if you think there might be, all you need to do is search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store or whichever your podcast provider is, and sign up to get a weekly dose of Spectator Books conversation. Stateside, both parties are gearing up for 2020. It's a bad time then for the Democrats to develop an anti-Semitism problem. In this week's issue, Freddie Gray looks at the two Congresswomen whose harsh comments about Israel and its influence in America haven't gone down that well. They've been accused of anti-Semitism and the Democrats have been criticised for protecting them. So, what's going on and why is the American left having the same problem as Corbyn's Labour Party? Freddie joins me from Washington together with American commentator Kate Andrews. So, Freddie, our British listeners are no strangers to the left's anti-Semitism problems, but in this week's issue, you're writing about the American left and saying that they're now experiencing something similar. What exactly is going on? Well, I think it's a it's a transatlantic phenomenon, I suppose, in that a kind of radically more left-wing movement has taken hold of the established centre-left party in both Britain and America. In in America, it's it hasn't taken control so much, but certainly that's where all the energy and the momentum is. And with that kind of radical progressivism, you get quite a lot of criticism of Israel. And this can be fair enough, but it can also bleed into a sort of slightly ugly rhetoric about Jews and how they control the world and that sort of sinister stuff. And Kate, what do you know about these two congresswomen, Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib? Well, it seems that they have gathered a lot of support since they have first come into office and they are the first two Muslim women to be representing in Congress in this way. So there's a lot to be excited about there. But unfortunately, especially I think on Omar's side, she's really become the highlight around this. She continues, not not as a one-off, but continues to use very problematic language when talking about Jewish people. And it does come across as very anti-Semitic. When it comes to Talib, it seems that she's been more active in, 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 in almost being complicit in the situation, liking Instagram profiles that have described Jewish people as rats and 
all other kinds of horrible things. So there seems to be either a complacency or an, an active uh, attempt to to undermine the Jewish community in this way. And, you know, it's just fundamentally not acceptable. And if you are going to be an elected representative, you have to be responsible for your words. And I think you, you have to be responsible for what you like on Instagram. Freddie, how have the Democrats responded to this? Well, I, I mean, I think that the, the Democratic leadership is in a very difficult place. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is very keen to to insist that, that you know the Democratic Party relationship is is with Israel is very very strong. Um, last year, she said at a conference that even if the capital, as in the American government, were to burn to the ground, our relationship with Israel would still remain resolute. I mean, that, so there's no uh, there's no doubt that the commitment from the Democratic Party to Israel is is very strong, and the rejection of any sort of hint of anti-Semitism is absolute. The problem is, is that the Democratic establishment don't really have the votes at the moment, and all the presidential candidates, um, not all of them, sorry, the, the most likely ones to win, have been reluctant, to put it mildly, to condemn Ilan Omar and Rashida, Rashida Taleb. As they as they sort of flirt with this with this anti-Semitic language, and what about Trump? Okay, I mean, this seems like the kind of thing that he might well be able to capitalize on. Has he has he done that yet? Yeah, I just want to say, actually, Kate, I just want to say, it, I mean, you're right about elected elected officials having to be responsible for their language, but then you do have to consider who's in the Oval Office. Oh, absolutely. So so Trump is very much looking to capitalize on this situation. He's trying to paint the Democrats as now the anti-Semitic party, and Jewish people in America have historically voted to, to the liberal left. They've been big supporters of the Democratic Party on average. And uh, I think the Republicans see this potentially and quite cynically as an opportunity to maybe move some of that voting block into their own camp. There was a resolution that went through the House just a little while ago based on Omar's comments, and it was originally going to be a resolution that was against anti-Semitism. But I think where you see the Democratic Party wavering, though certainly strong in their commitment to the Jewish community is the fact that they got nervous about being so blatant about her remarks that they made it much broader and started talking about anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and white supremacy, and why we should condemn all of those things. And so when the resolution passed, it really felt like it was actually less of a statement, despite covering more. Obviously, we should be opposed to all those things. And unfortunately, the president sitting in the Oval Office has a very bad reputation for also making extremely inappropriate comments about certain groups and ethnic minorities. But I think one of the issues is that everyone wants to be a bit hands-off and just say, look, we don't we don't want to be rude about anyone. We don't want to be racist towards anyone. The Republicans and the Democrats alike sometimes miss the point. You have people actively pushing against or being rude about one group. And sometimes you have to call that out specifically because it will actually matter more if you do. Yeah, I, th- I think that, well, I mean, I think partly the calling out is the problem in that, I mean, y- yes, one should be concerned about a kind of drift towards anti-Semitism in the Democrat Party, just like you should in the Labour Party. But in both countries, there's a lot of hot air. And the problem with hot air is it's quite easy to respond with hot air, which is exactly what Ilan Omar and Rashida Taleb have done. They've said, you know, you're accusing us of anti-Semitism, but what about your Islamophobia? You're accusing us of dual loyalties, just as you're saying we're accusing Jews of having dual loyalties. So you get into this sort of politically correct trap where everybody is saying, you don't understand me and you're being offensive. And as a result, you get nowhere and, you know, you only get more tribal and more suspicious of each other. So I, th- I think that's, that, that's the problem.
Okay, how similar is this phenomenon to what we've been seeing with Britain's Labour Party? I think there is some overlap, but the power dynamic is different. So in the United States, the moderates and those who are pro-Israel and also very supportive of the Jewish community, and those, you know, those can be two different things and they can also overlap, they certainly have control of the party. Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House. In, in the midterms, you actually saw that the wave of Democrats coming into Congress were from moderate, moderate spectrums of the party. So the moderates have the majority of the power. And thus, I think, are able to push back on sort of the rogue, populist, more anti-Semitic marks that are coming through. I would argue that here in the UK, it's it's not as clean cut as that. Unfortunately, people in positions of power have been accused of, of some of these kinds of remarks as well. And the power dynamic is making it harder to tackle anti-Semitism in the Labour Party in the UK. So I think the kinds of comments we're seeing and, and that rise of populist, very powerful state-centric mentality is, is allowing on the left for some of these anti-Semitic opinions to come through, but the ability to tackle it is different. And I would also just highlight that as as the West is becoming more populist, becoming more nationalist, and allowing for more of these authoritarian tendencies to creep through, we're seeing on the left with anti-Semitism, but also on the right with the alt-right, more fascist, Nazi-prone tendencies, people who have these quite dramatic opinions feeling like they can come to the surface and communicate them. So it's not just an issue for the left, but in terms of anti-Semitism right now, I think the Labour Party and the Democratic Party are reflecting each other more and more. Just finally, Freddie, I mean, looking towards 2020, how big an issue is this going to be for the Democrats, do you think? Well, I think it will be very interesting to see how it will develop, particularly if, you know, Bernie Sanders, who is, is you know, the second favourite at the moment, but I, I'd say a, a very, very strong candidate to win the nomination still. And he, of course, is Jewish, but he's much more in line with the way Ilan Omar and uh, Rashida Tlaib think about foreign policy and the Middle East than the Nancy Pelosi's and the Democratic establishment are. So you could get a party being accused of anti-Semitism being led by a Jew, which would be very interesting. Thanks, Freddie and Kate. And if you'd like to hear more from Freddie, Freddie has his own American podcast called Spectators Americano. And if you'd like to listen to that, just search for Americano on the iTunes store. And finally, do we want to know our future? Fiona Lenzelt is a tarot reader, and she travels the country offering her services with her best friend, Jennifer Conway. They say that tarot can't be used to tell your future, but that it's a good way to find out what story is going on in your life. So Jennifer joins me now, and at the end, she's going to give me a tarot reading. So Jennifer, can you start by explaining what tarot is? A very good question. So tarot, as you can probably tell by looking at it, is essentially a card game. It's about 600 years old, and its origins are very simply in playing games. So it's essentially trumps it's kind of like top trumps but in a bit of a playing card deck and over the last sort of over half a millennia it's been used increasingly for divinatory purposes so you've got a deck of 78 cards many of which would look sort of familiar versus a normal playing card deck some of which look very different all highly illustrated and each of them has a particular meaning and when you pull them together in combination you get to tell stories with it and how do you use these cards well you use them lots of different ways the way that i personally use them as part of literature is a bit 
non-traditional in terms of the kind of fortune telling side of things so I think where most people see the tarot it's you know in film or on tv and it's often someone kind of wearing a lot of velvet crushed (laughs) velvet and they're like oh you'll meet a handsome stranger or death is coming and that kind of thing that's actually a completely incorrect portrayal of even your more traditional tarot reading but Fiona and I as part of literature we think about it as a way of sort of understanding your present where you're at right now a bit of sort of self-reflection kind of asking questions that you had been asking yourself kind of getting new perspectives on things rather than trying to untangle the threads of the future which is quite tricky and you mentioned literature what exactly is literature sorry should have mentioned that (laughs) (laughs) so literature is i well we call it the literary tarot cabaret and consultancy because we needed a long ridiculous name but essentially it's a performance act that fiona and i do we appear at festivals and events around the country we read tarot on stage for creative people talking about their process talking about what they're doing books they're writing things they're up to what their influences are and we also do more private readings for individuals although those are fewer and further between because uh, there's only so much time in the day Um, (laughs) and in this week's spectator Fiona who's who's the other part of literature writes about why tarot is suddenly kind of having a resurgence I mean what do you think is behind it I mean I think it's been well it's been around for such a long time it's never ever fully gone away but there's definitely a real correlation Mm. between periods of I think instability and worry and concern and sort of renaissances of the occult so we saw a massive spike in the early 20th century during the world wars and similarly it's not been the greatest few years I think, <laughs> lately so a lot of people have been going oh god there's no there's no real meaning in sort of what's happening in the world we've got no idea what's going on total sense of loss of control and loss of personal agency so I think that's kind of precipitated a new interest in tarot and in playing with a different way of looking at the world a different way of trying to make sense of it and to kind of uh, I don't know find some meaning in a fairly spectacularly difficult scenario and I mean do you think in a sort of secular world it's it's kind of almost like a substitute for religion oh I mean it could be definitely certainly I'm not religious and I do the tarot but I don't think I'm curious about I think in some cases it really can be and I don't want to speak for all people who read the tarot for myself I really firmly believe that if you're reading tarot it shouldn't be taking the power away from you as the person being read for I don't like to think if I read for anybody that I'm now with a pack of cards telling them what to do with their lives or giving them that kind of structure that perhaps religion would I'd far rather that it was a tool to sort of help you make better decisions for yourself and to kind of feel empowered yourself to do something new so yes maybe but personally I believe that the most the most exciting thing the tarot can do is actually to give you give you back that agency rather than take it away further and what sort of people I mean have tarot readings is there more women than men or are there particular types of people who like to have their tarot read in terms of my own experience I I would be lying if I didn't say that women in their 20s and 30s weren't my like primary demographic (laughs) but perhaps that's partly to do with where I'm reading as well and and sort of the environments and the festivals that we're at but we've had we've had so many different people come to us for readings I mean I think Fiona talks about in her article everyone lawyers teachers like bankers hairdressers like anyone who's kind of curious about what's going on and has that sort of I'm always surprised by how many people when you tell about tarot just go oh yeah I used to do that when I was a teenager I'd love to have a go again it's a really mixed bag we've run some wonderful workshops we've just had sort of you know 100 120 people in a room at a festival and they've just been all walks of life all sorts of experiences all kind of just united by that same curiosity and that kind of interest I think in telling stories and in narrative 
I suppose as a woman in her 20s, I should probably ask you to read my diary. Probably should. I'm a little bit nervous about <laughs> it, but I suppose... Don't worry. As we're here, you've got your cards in front of you. Of course, how does do. it? I mean, how does it work? What do you What do? you do? So essentially, it's, it's quite a simple process where you shuffle the cards and then you pick the cards and then I tell you about the cards. <laughs> and um, we always say it's kind of as up to the querent, which is the person who's being read for. I think, it, I believe the meaning of the word is the person who seeks uh, how much they want to offer up in the reading if they want to say, oh, yeah that really speaks to me or if they want to go completely silent depending on what what they feel like let's see um but let's give it a go shall we you the most tarot spreads are quite complex they're sort of like 11 or 12 cards but given that we're doing a a little reading perhaps we should just pull three for you today and see see what's going on so we could do a sort of uh one card for how you're doing today one card for what's going to be great about today and one card for what's going to be challenging about today perhaps how about that sounds good can't be too (laughs) we'll find out so just have a little feel pick three little cards out and put them face down on the table that one that one and and this is the great moment of truth and um, I I always kind of make like weird owl noises (laughs) when I turn them over I'm like ooh and that's just unfortunately some kind of odd reaction that I have (laughs) well we'll see won't we Oh, that's a nice one. Ooh, there we go. Three little so you've cards. Got the sun, page, got the page of, of pentacles, and the knight of swords. So this is the kind of the U card. This is the what's going to be great about today. This is what's going to be challenging. We'll talk you through each of them. Obviously, when you look at them, they're just very colourful cards. But I'll mm, explain what pretty. different meanings are. They're very beautiful, and there are so many different decks out there now with so many different designs. So the sun is one of the major arcana, and in the tarot deck, you've got fifty-six minor arcana, which are these two sort of more day-to-day. These are things that are going on, sort of like your average experiences. And then the major arcana are more the big archetypes. So when you're watching a film, we see tarot cards, they almost always just pull out the major arcana because they're the fancy ones like the hermit and death and the emperor. The sun basically just means a really wonderful kind of radiant energy, someone or something who's kind of bringing so much to the world, a visionary, kind of a real sort of thinker who's putting putting out this fantastic, lovely energy. I love getting the sun. <laughs> Honestly, like this is fantastic. I've had some really odd ones come up when I'm reading people, and then you know <laughs> it's, it's like quite weird you are very rainy day. the hanged man, and you kind of go, "All right, cool." But you see, the sun is basically it's a naked baby riding a horse with sunflowers around it and a big sun ahead of it. So it's it's one of the most joyous and delightful <laughs> cards of the deck. So this gives me great vibes about you. Clearly, <laughs> clearly you're bringing something wonderful, and hopefully the people around you recognise that and go, "Yes, <laughs> she's someone who, who brings light that, into that their lives." Design. Well, let listeners decide. We all agree, right? Well, I, I met you for about five minutes and I think you're great. So oh, there we go. You. What's going to be good about today? So the page of pentacles, the page of pentacles. The pentacles are the suit of the earth. They're the suit of kind of the body and things that are real and manifest and material. And they're these little kind of coin guys with a five-pointed star in. And the pages are always a sort of a, a youthful energy within each suit. So this is a, a young man wearing a, a very fetching tunic and a fun, fun hat and holding a coin in his hands. And essentially he's about planting new seeds and, and beginning new projects. So starting something, something that's probably related to work or to home or to yourself, uh, something that's kind of real and, and tangible and kind of thinking, what will happen if I plant this? What, where will this grow to? So perhaps today you'll, you'll have an amazing idea or something will come up and you'll think, oh, Perhaps I'm gonna I'm gonna give that a go. <laughs> Maybe it could be so it could so. be anything. Well, let's, I hope so too. The great thing is you can tell me you can tell me if it's absolute nonsense, or you can go yeah definitely I've got this brilliant thing on the back burner but I'm gonna go with it. So um, he's very much about looking to the future and kind of bringing that sense of hope and optimism and curiosity about what's going forward. We'll be challenging about today the Knight of Swords. Knight of Swords is a man on a horse waving a sword, as the, as the <laughs> name suggests. <laughs> 
this one's like quite literal. The swords are the suit of the mind. So it's where you get things that are about kind of intellect and argument and also sort of that kind of intelligence, but also you get things like anxiety and worry. And the knights are this sort of almost teenage energy of the cards. Like I sort of refer to them often as the bad boyfriends. Like, you know, when you're younger and you date men and they haven't quite <laughs> kind of grown into who they're going to be and they're just a really extreme version of whatever they are. And this is the sort of really argumentative, like opinionated, like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna play devil's advocate because I can sort of person. So I suggest that maybe there'll be a challenge today that'll be sort of coming up against someone who's going to have a bit of a feisty, feisty fight with you and you're going to have to stand your ground in front of that knight of swords and go, maybe they're just being a bit too much. And uh, <laughs> keep, just keep on, keep on radiating and Great. doing it. Come on. That's, I can I can take you. Well, so, I think uh, that I can hopefully handle that. Today. <laughs> <laughs> a very very brief reading for you there. But, Brilliant. Um, well, Jennifer, thank you so much. You're and, very um, welcome. It's lovely seeing your cards. <laughs> thank you. And that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do let us know. You can subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you pick up this week's issue, you can read all of the pieces discussed, as well as more from Douglas Murray on Bloody Sunday, George Osborne and Rod Liddell, who explains why he's joined the SDP. Plus, don't forget about our fantastic offer. You can get 12 issues for £12, plus a free £20 John Lewis voucher if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. This podcast is brought to you by Merian Global Investors. Merian is proud to be the principal partner of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, together sharing commitment to providing the space to perform.